Hi, I'm Robert. And I'm Keegan. And you're listening to Brave New Space. Today, we're going to be following up on our continuing segment, Space by the Numbers. And today, we'll be yet again coming back to SpaceX and a number that they put out not too long ago, and that is two starships per week. And what does that mean? So, Robert, for anyone who's been keeping up on the apparently never-ending series of updates coming out of SpaceX, Elon Musk, a few few weeks back at time of recording, purported that the game plan for SpaceX was to build two starships per week. So for a little bit of context, in the 10-year history of producing them, there were only ever six space shuttles ever built. And Starship is around the same size and functionally the uh, same use case. So this is a massive increase in the number of vehicles that will have access to space being turned out in any order of magnitude that we've ever seen before. And and let's also remind listeners that this is a reusable, he wants to be able to return this and be able to gas it up again, fill it up and and be able to use it sometimes the same day. Is that not correct? Yeah, they're talking about uh, potentially being able to go as high as four flights per day. So it's truly mind-boggling what they could, even if they only got, you know, to a flight a day, that's still more than any other launch vehicle ever built, ever. So we're talking multiple orders of magnitude of an increase in the amount of launch capacity we have. In other words, how easy it is to get to space. Two starships a week, that's 104 starships a year. That's 416 flights in a given year just from one production run of spacecraft. That's something like 100 flights more than I think the entire space shuttle fleet uh, ended up knocking out. But Keegan, why does Elon need so many of these in the order of dozens, if not hundreds of these starships? What's he thinking about here? From my perspective, you got to think of what Elon wants this for and what SpaceX wants this for. Because no company is is ever run by one man, as often as many companies would like everyone to believe that is the case. Elon, I think... Genuinely means what he says, that he wants to make life multiplanetary. And if you want to colonize space, you need a truly you know, staggering number of spacecraft. But what SpaceX wants with these seems to be twofold. So SpaceX recently put out a Starship user's manual, which I encourage you all to take a peek at. It's uh, quite an enjoyable read, which kind of outlines not the business case, but gives us an idea of what they expect users to make use of this for. So SpaceX has stated that their immediate revenue generator for the Starship is going to come back to their Starlink satellite internet program, which makes sense. They're talking, you know, thousands, if not tens of thousands of satellites they want to launch. They need to up their launch capacity. And that's uh, assuming that they only launch these things once. There's probably going to have to be continued, you know, replacement and upgrades of what they put in orbit. So they're going to need a fairly sizable launch vehicle. But this user's guide they've put out outlines a number of different use cases of the technology, partly for government agencies like NASA who might want to use this to be able to put, you know, very, very large space telescopes and research labs into orbit. But it also gives a much wider range of uses from being able to access the lunar surface for mining and manufacturing to different types of cargo configurations for low Earth orbit. They seem to be trying to make a general purpose spacecraft that would be so cheap that more users would have access to it than ever before and kind of bootstrap a space boom, if you will. They have not said anything in those exact words, but that seems to be, be what the goal is here with the number of vehicles they want to make and the how vague they are on what its intended uses could ultimately be. Because they seem to be, be saying that that's not our job. That's the end user to 
who should be free to make use of whatever they want of this thing. So again, maybe we could go back to an analog where they don't want to necessarily be the cargo company or the passenger, you know, airline. They don't want to become like, you know, the, the Delta or the American Airlines or Polar cargo they want to be the you know more like a a boeing yeah they want to be the boeing of space and uh, they don't really sell themselves exactly like that they you know the, the space industry is one that has you know kind of this image of constantly putting forth high-minded ideas but from a purely business perspective that's what they want so essentially though this is an intern from my understanding this is still an internally funded project there are no essentially you know, this is not the U.S. government that has said, you know, we are, you know, we are providing funding like we did with uh, the commercial crew car and cargo programs um, that were sponsored from NASA. This is essentially an internally driven program, and they're trying to uh, tell their audience, which is, uh, you know, customers of various sorts, these are the various use cases. Go use your imagination and come back to us and we'll get you there. Right. And while it is not government funded yet... The fact that they are designed, that they've been, you know, purporting this thing as a exploration vehicle as well as a commercial vehicle says that they have every intention of trying to sell this thing to NASA, which is, you know, still the biggest customer in this industry. So I don't think that there's any kind of black budget or anything that's going on towards them, but I think they have every intention of making NASA one of their biggest customers as time goes on. So let's just say I want to build a space station. And in the old days, you would have to send it up in essentially in is modular pieces and assemble it in orbit. Now with, um, we are nascent on orbit manufacturing, very, very limited, you know, some things going on um, through groups like Made in Space on the space station. And if you had something like Starship operational, could you basically take, you know, most of your space station there, mostly if not fully assembled? Well, you can do it one of two ways. And we almost can't use existing companies uh, as examples of how you would carry this out just because everybody's still operating on the assumption that they have very small, very expensive payloads to work with and not very, very large, very cheap ones like Starship could conceivably enable. So you would either have a scenario where Maiden Space could essentially build kind of their dream robot that could go to an asteroid and then mine that for raw materials and then use that to build a space station entirely on orbit. Or you could build something the size of the ISS, you know, modularly, but for far, far less money than you would be able to do too. And certainly far quicker because you'd be able to put far larger payloads into orbit at the rates that SpaceX is talking about of, you know, three to four launches a day. And that's assuming you're only operating one spacecraft. I mean, uh, imagine if a private contractor had a shuttle fleet of uh, starships, you know, six vehicles flying at a rate of four launches a day instead of, if they're lucky, a dozen a year. That means that you're able to stand up, you know, International Space Station size installations far faster than has ever been thought possible. And it really is mind boggling what this can enable. So let's kind of come back to that number, that two starships a week. What's that really mean uh, from a production standpoint? So if you're building two starships a week, that means 104 starships per year. That's a lift capacity that if you're operating under the assumption that all those were, say, human-rated, and with able to send 100 people into space at, let's say, three, let's say three launches a day on the conservative side. That's the launch capacity to send 12 million people to space or 18 million tons of cargo into space per year. And that's if their production rate stays at two starships per week, which they want to hit next year. 
If they can scale up that fast, then they might be at the rate of commercial airliners in the not too distant future. Boeing is making 13 737s uh, per week. That's the, in their rate. So that's 676, wow, yeah. per year. So that's not a huge gulf when you really look at it. I mean, if you're talking a change from, say, being able to make six spacecraft over a decade down to being able to make two per week, jumping that up to another their 11 spacecraft per week does not seem like that huge of a jump for me. So why does two starships a week even seem achievable? Why is this something that's even possible? So SpaceX has been building their prototypes uh, out in the open in Boca Chica, Texas, for the last few months now, and they've had their share of delays. But what they've demonstrated with this prototyping has been a exponential increase in how fast they can put these things together. And at time of recording, they've been able to stand up one Starship prototype in a single week. Now, it's an incomplete vehicle, but they were still able to make the bulk of its airframe in one week's time, built out of stainless steel and production techniques that really aren't all that complicated. That's not to to diminish what SpaceX has done. But that's to give you a sense of how significant this is, because anytime you've ever looked at that, if you ever uh, had the chance, go back and look how the space shuttle was built or the Saturn V, and you've got guys walking around in clean room suits, individually putting little tiles together and you know working on extremely complicated pieces of machinery, where a Starship is a few dozen guys out in the middle of, middle of Texas, you know, just using welders and standard you know rolling equipment like you would if you were making a water tower. So... This simplicity of construction makes it a lot more achievable to make a lot of spacecraft in a relatively short period of time. And we've never seen anything like this in the space industry before. And Keegan, if he needs to send 12 million people a year to Mars, we're thinking about Mars, Elon's thinking about Mars. There's still no infrastructure, though, on Mars, and there's not a great business case by conventional um, descriptions in, in economics, but, you know, maybe in a uh, the pandemic era we live in, maybe society's open to new ideas. Of- yeah, a, a, ster- a completely sterile planet sounds kind of nice right about now, doesn't it? Well, here's the thing. Uh, they haven't really said, talked too much about this, but they have made it clear that there's going to be a cargo variant of Starship. I mean, that's a big thing in the user's manual. I'd be willing to bet that for that first year or so, of the 104 Starships they could conceivably build, probably a good quarter of those easy are going to, if they're making prototypes at the rate they are right now, and they're talking about a very fast iterative process, maybe a good quarter of those might not even be flight worthy. Those will just be test articles. And even if not, I'd be willing to bet most of those are going to be cargo variants. If they are designed to be crewed, very small crews. You know, there isn't much of a commercial reason to send 100 people into space at the race we're talking about here just yet. But there is a big commercial reason to being able to send a the truly staggering amount of cargo we're talking about at the low costs that we're discussing. I mean, just from a government perspective, NASA's got the James Webb Space Telescope that they want to fly. They've got a couple other uh, missions coming up that would be Mars-bound. If they could cut the cost of those as significantly as SpaceX could enable, I don't see any reason why they wouldn't want to take, take them up on that. The military is looking into a couple of projects that they've spoken about publicly. There was the Block 3 uh, GPS network that they've been trying to get off the ground for a little while now. If they could speed that up and reduce that cost, you know, more power to them. But where this is going to come in handy in a big way is to commercial providers who can now take advantage of opportunities in space that did not previously exist. So, you know, SpaceX is right now talking about being able to operate a satellite-based internet service. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if our friends over at Momentus Space 
decided that if they had access to, well, what was it? We, we talked about this last week, $10 a pound to orbit or something like that is what SpaceX is running off of. Yeah, something like, like you know, 10 bucks a pound per orbit. I wouldn't be surprised if our friends like, say, at Momentous Space or... Uh, or maybe maybe even uh, Orbit Fab. Yeah, or Orbit Fab wouldn't take advantage of that to stand up some much larger projects than they would otherwise have been able to get away with. Robert, before we got on the call, you were talking about uh, what this might be able to do for space debris mitigation. Yeah, there's a, uh, you know, they're talking about having a reusable fairing. So the fairings, the, um, you know, think about if you look at the top of the rocket when it carries a satellite, it's the portion that essentially protects the payload. Yeah, it's the trunk you stick your payload in. Yeah, and it, and right now, if you look at if you go on the user's guide, I think there's a, a diagram of it. You see that it kind of opens like a clamshell, and they're talking about making that fully reusable. So, I could maybe envision, you know, you could have something that's basically a, a scooper. You know, to have some as you were sharing earlier, Keegan, probably an articulation device, maybe robotic arm, sticky boom type of thing, where it could go and grab whether it's uh, retired satellites, space debris and put it back in there and potentially return it to Earth. Right. And space debris has been is a greater and growing problem. And it's, let's be honest, it's only going to get worse if you have the, the great irony is Starship is kind of a platform that requires us to develop better debris clean technology in space. Because now that, because if you have a system that makes it possible to put even more stuff into orbit, that by its very nature means there's going to be a higher risk of space debris. So there's now going to be, you know, it kind of creates its own uh, economic incentive to develop new debris cleaning technologies in orbit. There's also the possibility of, you know, we talk about debris cleaning in space. Most solutions have been all about, uh, you know, disposing of it, you know, hitting it with a laser or capturing it and having it burn up in the atmosphere. Well, if SpaceX gets this cheap, then you could conceivably, you know, grab a hold of derelict satellites and either give them an upgrade and, you know, send them into a higher orbit or just capture them for recycling back on Earth. I mean, Robert, in a weird way, isn't that kind of, isn't, you think space recycling might be kind of a, a forerunner to space mining? Yeah. Repurposing uh, existing, you know, materials, whether it's for the same, you know, the same use, life extension of the spacecraft or entirely new novel uses. And uh, maybe it's a more efficient way than, you know, bringing things junk back to Earth. And uh, I would probably make a lot of uh, that would, you know, maybe make some good uh, long term business sense. And that would probably please the public as well to learn about that. It's probably a good PR move because there's been a challenge around orbital debris. Nobody wants to pay for it. No. And it's uh, the only folks who've been really serious about it have been government entities. The military has been looking into it for a little while now, but it's been a livable condition for the longest time. Well, if we're talking about 14,000 Starlink satellites buzzing around the Earth inside of the next decade, I think that's going to be create enough of a risk <laughs> the military might be willing to pay out, the, you know, might be willing to be the ones to sign the check. And who knows, it might actually be a private company who wants to take advantage of, you know, essentially a big recycling opportunity that would be available in space. You know, there's one use case for all this we uh, haven't really talked about. So if they're talking about making enough space, you know, 104 starships per year on one production plant. There's one other use case SpaceX has talked about that we haven't gotten into, and that's been for Earth-to-Earth transport. SpaceX CEO Gwen Shotwell has talked about this being kind of a really interesting opportunity for being able to disrupt international air travel. So you can kind of think of Starship as a new kind of supersonic transport in this sense, being able to send people from... New York to Tokyo inside of 30 minutes. 
But Keegan, that would probably be a pretty <laughs> if you're if you're flying from New York, where would you put that because of the noise of it taking up? Would you have to basically put this offshore from, say, uh, you know, in the Atlantic and you would ferry passengers out to the Starship? Well, that's actually what they, uh, SpaceX talks about in one of their promo videos. They've uh, always shown it being a scenario where you'd have a floating launch platform and people would take a little boat, out, you know, a little ferry ship out to, into the platform and then, you know, take that into space. The one thing they have shown it doing that I suspect won't make it to the final version has been uh, the Starship is standing above the waterline. I'm willing to bet that given the size of this vehicle and the acoustic risk, that it might actually be easier to dust off a page from a very old concept in the space industry that's existed since the invention of the submarine-launched uh, ballistic missile, and that's to put the Starship in the water and have it kind of bob like a cork. And so you'd be able to take your ferry out onto kind of a little dock, and there'd just be kind of the nose cone of the spacecraft you know, showing up, and you just walk right onto it so you don't have to take like an elevator up to the top of it or anything. And then after that, the dock would be able to kind of pull away and then it would launch from the sea. So that would allow you to further reduce your infrastructure requirements. The only thing that would be tricky is where is this thing going to land? And if that's the case, then we, then who knows? Maybe a, you know, from the surface launch uh, might end up being better overall because then they can land on the same platform. But for that, that's a whole other set of engineering challenges they have to solve, uh, building a stable launch platform like that. Uh, for a spacecraft that size. I mean, they've gotten it to the point where the Falcon 9 spacecraft can land offshore on a floating platform in rough seas without too much trouble. I mean, they've only had they've only lost one out of, I think, a couple dozen flights lately that just kind of missed the spacecraft and the uh, landing pad. Thank you very much for listening to Brave New Space, Space by the Numbers. I'm Robert. And I'm Keegan. And we hope to bring you uh, future segments of Space by the Numbers, hopefully featuring um, other segments, players, and organizations in the emerging new space industry. So stay tuned. On our next episode of Brave New Space, we're going to feature our segment, The War in Space, with a special guest, James Dunstan. Hi, listener. My new book, Space is Open for Business, is coming out soon, and I want you to get a sneak preview of it. Head on over to my website, robertjacobson.com, for a first look.